Hi, I'm Peg Mulqueen, and welcome to this latest podcast from Ashtanga Dispatch. Today, I don't want you to just tune in. I want you to really tune in because I don't want you to miss a thing today's guest, meditation teacher and psychologist John Churchill has to say. John teaches in the Indo-Tibetan Buddhist tradition, a form of meditation called the pointing out style, which centers heavily on the teacher-student relationship. Sound familiar, Shanga peeps? John also has the distinguished pleasure, and by pleasure I mean challenge, of teaching me, this monkey here, how to meditate. John gets me. He meets me where I am, which is usually on a yoga mat, not a cushion. Today's episode is actually my last session with him, which of course begins with me talking asana. So sit down, pay attention, and let's have a listen. One of the things I was noticing that when you would have me observe the breath, I would observe my own breath like I was sitting outside of my body. It didn't occur to me until months in that I wasn't observing from inside. I was observing from outside. Is that normal? (laughs) No. (laughs) You should stop the the recording right now. No. No. Is it? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, uh, it's a great question. Um, I think that that's generally the experience of when they begin yoga. Now, and I don't mean <laughs> okay, but, but you, I mean but beginning yoga can be for the first twenty years. Okay, thank you. And so, what I mean by that is, is that um, This is partly cultural, but it's also universal. But there's a strong cultural element here is that we locate ourselves in our belief system, in our heads. Mm-hmm. So there's a belief. You, you, people can believe that they're very much in their bodies because they do advanced yoga. And I'm not, I'm not talking, referring to you here, every, you know, in general. Right. But actually what they're very very good at is they're very good at manipulating the body. That is exactly what I think I realized was that I was operating up here in that little space between my ears and behind my eyes and everything else was just kind of dangling off of me and that I was watching myself from up here, but not really coming in. So my question is, is, do you when you when you're practicing your vinyasa how do you where do you experience yourself where are you in the practice totally in well it depends wait i now i'm going to tell you the more complicated it is i found mm. the more apt i am to be having a whole body experience the less complicated it is the more i'm manipulating my body Mm-hmm. Uh, the more I'm thinking I'm up here. So breathing is something we do. So I think I was just kind of watching myself from the outside, but it was the first time I realized that I was outside, not in, I wasn't feeling it. I was thinking about it. I was mm-hmm. not really fully, I don't know how to say it other than that. So we can talk, we can talk about this in different ways. If you look at, one of the one of the yoga is a technology essentially around yoking, and another way of looking about that is a technology to understand the nature of non-duality. 
the non-duality of our experience. And that non-duality has multiple different expressions. So one, one expression of non-duality, for instance, is subject and object, like the, the, the separation between what we perceive and the perceiver. But a, you know, a basic non-duality that people face when they begin yoga practice is just the, the non-duality or the, or the duality between mind and body. So we have an idea that mind is different from body. Yes. Or the body is different from mind. And part of that is the nature of how, from the point of view of how our confusion develops, and this means, this, so this kind of confusion, the confusion here means um, avidya or ignorance, our ignorance of reality. So our ignorance of reality develops because we create a boundary, a separation. We create a fundamental separation between ourselves and our experience. So we think we're seeing a world out there. We think we're tasting chocolate out there. We think we're smelling a rose that's out there as if there's something separate from us, like our experience is separate from us. Mm -hmm. And as that idea of subject and object becomes slowly reified, and by reified, I hear we make it real as a structure. You know, an infant doesn't know the difference between inside and outside. So inside and outside is slowly developed as an idea. It's an idea. It's a structure. There's neither inside nor outside. There's just experience. You're just Right now, there's just experience. But you have an idea in your mind that you are somehow behind your eyeballs looking at something. Yes. But that's entirely something that's actually constructed. It's not, it's not actually a nature of your perceptual system. So yoga is essentially, it's really coming to understand the nature of your perceptual system and, and clarifying perception. So we, you create this structure of duality, right? and then this structure of duality then creates, oh my God, there's something out there. It can get me. Right? So once we create an outside, then there's something that can scare us. You know, because there's something that can get us. Now, of course, on a physical level, or when we look out there, we see, you know, tigers getting gazelles and we're like, oh my God, yes, things can be got and, you know, eaten and attacked. But in terms of our own, you know, but yoga is really about the, the interior process. Like how do we rec- how do we come to heal our interior relationship with our experience? So initially we have this experience of non-duality as an infant. And then slowly we construct a sense of out there. And as we construct a sense of out there, along come with it the ideas, you know, of like past, present, and future, the ideas of a body, having a body, and then there's something that isn't a body. Mm-hmm. And then there's a world out there that can damage our body. So then we begin to experience ourselves as being vulnerable. You know, prior to these constructions, the infant's experience of their, of that is one of kind of deep openness, like such immense vulnerability to reality and the vulnerability to the energies in, a, in, a, in some ways in a positive way. But then as these, as these structures develop, well, then there's a realization that, oh, there's something, there's it, it can get me. And once you've created an it in your experience, then you've created a sense of fear. And then once you do that, you're going to have defense mechanisms that you're going to have to try and manage it. It's a problem. And so one of the fundamental defense mechanisms is, well, I'm going to get into my head. 
Because if I get into my head, then it's the most then I'm not going to be disturbed by it. I'm not going to be emotionally disturbed by it. The, and you know, I'm not even going to be emotional. I'm going to get as far away from it as I possibly can to a place where I feel um, as safe as I possibly can be. And where that ends, where that ends us up, and where the, the journey begins, is essentially kind of locating our sense of self, if you will, kind of in our head, and slightly divorced from our body and our emotions. And then on a and and separated from the world around us, you know, as a individuated ego, right? And so we begin doing our practice, and we're doing our practice from that place. So when you begin, let's say, meditating from that place, because this is you know the meditation is the journey of retracing those steps, of undoing those those structures. When you when you begin the meditation. You, you, you can find yourself being very concentrated, but it's as if you are located somewhere else watching it. That was, fr- that was really funny. It was the first time that I realized that I saw myself in two parts, mm-hmm. that I really did separate myself. I have a body. I mean, it was like something I own or like, I don't know. It was something separate from me because me was not it. I am up here. Right. And when you have, when you, what you've expressed is when you have, you know, when you're really engaged in your yoga, that duality drops away. I have to be really engaged but the funny thing is, is this is, this is, these are all these like little realizations and they've just been in the past month was that when I try too hard, I separate more. Because when you try too hard, underlying this belief is the belief that you're trying to get somewhere. I'm not. Well, no, no. Well, you have to understand that that. And this is where the yoga, you really have to understand, I, I think I've said to you before, yoga can be the most sophisticated form of self-torture or a system of liberation. Because getting somewhere, is the, underneath that is the belief in, in, in duality and in separation. And all that does is tighten the knot even more. Because then you reify, you make real even more these structures, and then it gets even tighter. So the paradox is, is yes, we, one does have to learn how to be highly motivated. But then it's highly motivated in such a way that there's, that's a quality, that's one quality. But to be highly motivated whilst not reifying those ideas of, of lack. And if you're very sensitive to it, there's a sense of aggression because you're trying to get somewhere. And underneath that is, is the belief that right now, the present moment isn't okay. So if you're actually, let's say, you're, if you're concentrating, if you're doing concentration meditation and you've been concentrating on your breath, well, your breath is already here. In each moment, you're experiencing it now. So to try harder, to try and get more, what you start doing is you're starting to chase a moment that isn't here. 
I was trying right. to do it right, though. That's what I was trying. Like I was, I wasn't trying to get anywhere. I was just trying to do it right. And so I well, was <laughs> under, implied in the idea of doing it right is that you're doing it wrong. Yes. Which implies that you need to be somewhere else, as opposed to being with the breath that's right here and just being so engaged and sensitive to it. The, the, the background beliefs and ideas of whether you're doing it right or wrong have nothing to do with it because it's just right here. You say that, but then I'm sitting there and I um, I really am trying. Like I'm I'm sitting and I'm I'm watching it and I'm trying to be with that every second. I hear your voice. Be that interested. Be that engaged. And I am so. Like, almost like, can your brain make muscles or can you like flex your brain muscles or something? But that's, that's what it feels like. And then I realized, shit, I'm doing it wrong again because now this, all this be, I have a good ending to the story because (laughs) I, it didn't just, you know, Mm -hmm. I didn't keep going along this route. Once I realized that that's what I was doing, that I was completely separate that I was like flexing brain muscles. That's the only way I can explain it. Like I, you know, when you try to muscle through things when you're doing something and you're using too much effort and it like gets sore, you know, I feel like my brain was getting sore. I was concentrating so hard, but not the right way. I was doing it separately. Well, uh, exactly. Well, the first thing is, you, you noticed (laughs) Well, you notice this. So this is huge because you have this insight. People can, unfortunately, continue doing practice, whether that's asana practice or, or pranayama or meditation from that place where they just force it and they 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 force it. Now, you see, it, it, it isn't just the question that there's you and there's the object. It has, there's also the third aspect, which is what you're missing. What? Well, there's, there's what you see, there's the seer, and there's the act of seeing, meaning there's the quality of the relationship between the two. So what's missing is the quality of the relationship. By that I mean the relational so if you think about when, 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 we, when we talk about it, right? It yeah. is, uh, is the language of third person, right? Yeah. I, first person, you or we, second person, and it, third person. Okay. Now, it is the most, the most ob- objectified and unrelated stance you could have with, with, with experience. Oh, God. So I named my breath it, didn't I? Well, but, we, but most of us make the whole of reality it, right? That's why we get scared, because we're scared of it. Right? So the process, one of the ways of thinking about the process of yoga is, is making third person into second person into first person, meaning... What starts is something that's objective, a, a body that's like, you know, you're, you know, a machine, then becomes slowly this, this relationship. You, you begin to experience a, relate, a relationship with it. You, you are merging. And then eventually you become it. There's even, there's no, there's no boundary. There's no difference. 
It's the same thing with um, when we, you know, when we love somebody. Well, when you when when they're an it, there's not much of a relationship going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, when, when somebody is an it, that's when we can do things to people that are inhumane because we don't even acknowledge their humanity. And then we move to second person, and then it implies that we we understand this relationship. And eventually, if we, you know, if we really love someone deeply and intimately, we'll have moments where we become one with the other. And we're making love, we merge, where we lose ourselves. Okay. So you can think of, you know, samadhi, yoga, is the process of coming into relationship with your experience and then eventually merging and becoming one with it. So just with the breath. Yes, you begin with the breath and most, or the body for that matter, and it's third person and it's, an objective thing, but the, but there's no relationship there. If anything, it's that's how they would call it in traditional Buddhism. They would say that there's an, a slight ill will towards the object because there's no intimacy, there's no love. You're not really caring for the breath. You know, if you really want to focus on something, just fall in love with it. Well. As a matter of fact, now that you say that, Mm -hmm. that's exactly once I realized that I was so that I was separating myself, Mm -hmm. I couldn't do it. You, I I couldn't do it seated. So I went to my yoga practice and I was like, (laughs) okay, wait a second. If I'm doing it seated, I have to. I bet I'm doing it there too. And Mm -hmm. I was. I was trying, 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 trying so hard. Right, trying to be be the breath, be, you know, follow it and all of those things. And then I realized that I was separating myself. So then I tried it to be it. Mm-hmm. And I found these moments in my practice when I was in postures where it would seal off and be one where I could just feel a circular energy kind of with the breath. I could hear it. I could feel it. I had to close my eyes. And I know you're not supposed to do that, but I did an entire practice. Well, you don't care, but other people might. Um, but <laughs> I did a whole practice with my eyes closed because I found that if I closed my eyes, I could experience it better. That with my eyes open, I had a hard time. I still would go into that watching, looking to see if I was doing it right or wrong or where I was. But if I closed my eyes, I could be different. I could feel it more. I could be more, um, I had to depend on other senses maybe I, or, but I, I could feel, I could go more with feeling than with seeing. And it was well, a whole different experience. Absolutely. Sorry. Holy crap. No. <laughs> well, yoga has nothing to do with asana has nothing to do with seeing. <sighs> the problem, well, the problem Here's the challenge, right? The, the problem is, People are reading yoga journal. They go to a class. They watch a teacher. Yeah. So and so many of the metaphors are visual. And now they on the and and you know so so there's an emphasis on visual. Yes. But actually, if you're yoking the body, you can't use visual because that isn't the body. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll teach yoga practices related to sight, the non-duality of vision, but that has not, that's, 
like asanas designed to uh, you know come to understand the non-duality of awareness and body and you can't do that with your eyes <laughs> which is so so you can get very advanced in asana and if you're doing it with your eyes all you've done is learn how to put your body in different geometric shapes and you've never actually experienced the asana in terms of its energy because what you're doing is you're opening you're opening pathways of experience when you do an asana you're stimulating your body it's, it's, it's a you know it's a whole experience each asana is like a flavor it's a you know it's an exquisite it's it's exquisite so you know when you have your head behind your your foot behind your head you know there are exquisite sensations that are being generated and if you don't understand that the the yoga happens when the mind and the sensations collapse and merge into one another but but if you're doing it because you're trying to get somewhere and based upon what you think it should look like then it has nothing to do with the yoga that's happening in that moment when you've got so much sensation going on the idea is right you've created so much sensation that if you just relaxed your mind would get sucked into the sensation and that's exactly what i found it was it was so freeing and that's when i realized that I'd been trying too hard, that my eyes, I was letting my head, even my alignment, my head was like separate from my body, that I wasn't even aligning my head correctly because when I would look and when I would think, it would cut it off like it was separate. And it, But when I closed my eyes, the whole thing became one. The only way I knew what I was doing was by feeling it and everything. And that's when I realized that my head was a part of my body and that yeah. everything is so <laughs> like, but clo- I kept my eyes closed every now and then I'd open them just to see that I wasn't like way off and, mm. but I wasn't, I wasn't, it was, it was a beautiful practice. It was the most freeing and awesome practice. I felt things and the sensations and the breath, the, the breath was like, different times like I wasn't really even aware I was just I was just moving up and down with the breath but the breath was what was aligning me it wasn't my eyes anymore if it got stuck I knew something wasn't I would just kind of move so that the breath had a free pathway that's the way I would think about it It was just like moving the things around so that it could make its way up there that there was something in its way if it wasn't if I couldn't breathe or if I couldn't get off you know what I mean like the energy was moving and I wasn't looking to see if I was doing it right. I wasn't even concentrating on where my eyes were supposed to be. And I think that's really what I'm doing when I'm practicing is I'm, you know, here's where I'm supposed to be looking and trying and I'm straining to get you think, well, there. Your drishti, yeah. all, it, all it is, is that's where you should rest your guide, your eyes. Like that just means like just rest your eyes. Yeah, my eyes aren't resting. FYI. So, well, well, think about. Okay, so here's a question for you: Where is awareness located in the body? For me, it's going to be behind my eyes. I mean, that's okay, so, where. Okay, so, well, that's where you have a. Um, at this str- moment, right now, you're noticing that there's a. Uh, particular gathering of energy that seems to kind of coagulate around that your your attention pulls your energy to that place 
But in my practice, that's not where it is. Well, it, it not normally. I mean, not really. So from the point of view of the yoga tradition, your body arises within awareness. So your body is a right meaning awareness. Your body, every part of your body is awareness. It's not located in your head. It's located as much in your fingertips as it is in your head, as it is in your mulabandha. The whole field, right? There's no, there's no duality between the field of sensation and your awareness, which is why you see when you try harder, what you're actually doing is tightening the, the agya knot. So the agya knot is the knot of energy between the eyebrows. Now that knot of energy, the agya center, tightens when you seek. It tightens when, you, when you're looking for something. Yes. So the harder you try, the tighter the knot. And the knot separates you more and more and more and more. Because, of course, if you think about it, the entire field of your whole body is awareness. So what happens then is your awareness is getting more and more and more limited. So rather than having awareness which is whole, which is the whole body, now you're only aware of being located between your eyebrows, which means your awareness is now completely limited. It was 360 degrees, and now it's 20 degrees. And, and therefore, you've lost awareness. A, you've lost awareness. But B, you've also lost awareness of, of also the parts of the body and the emotions and the whole realm of experience that's the rest of your whole, of your whole experience. That now you've lost the wholeness. Now, part of asana practice was developed and designed to break apart the tendency to create that muscular armor body armor, which, which separates you. But again, if you, if you don't know that's what you're doing, you can actually even strengthen the body armor even more. So you can yes. try so hard that rather than liberating yourself, you actually imprison yourself. And that's why they said in the yoga tradition, you know, every, me- every medicine is a poison. And the strongest poison of all is yoga and is the strongest medicine because, you know, you take a medicine that can really, it can really liberate you. You take the medicine wrong, you, we, can, we can very easily strengthen our habits, our habit body, right? So you can very easily, if you're not followed and practicing, you know, practice harder and harder and harder and, and, get, and tighten that knot between your eyebrows more and more and more and more. So I think that's what I was doing when I was seated for a lot of the time was I was trying so hard that it was, it it was, it it didn't feel good. I felt like I was getting worse, like I was getting worse at it. But then when I brought it onto my asana practice, when I had that realization of what I was doing, I couldn't really stop in the seat. For some reason, it just wasn't happening. And then in the asana practice, I would get glimpses of it, but it was off and on. And when I closed my eyes, it was the, I, then I knew, I knew when I lost it and when I would lose it would be in the transitions. 
when I would move from one place to the next, that's when I would somehow become disconnected again. It would still, it would still kind of the thinking brain would kick in. But when I would get to that place, that stillness place, whether it was downward facing dog or as, you know, forward fold or whatever, I could once again reclaim that feeling of oneness. And, but, but then I was even realizing, which was, I thought was cool was I knew when it would come in and out. I was much more aware and I wasn't trying. I really was just shutting. I think the eyes closed for me. I, I'm trying to make a case that I should just really practice like that all the time. Well, so, so right now, fine, close your eyes. I mean, eventually what you'll come to understand is it doesn't really matter if your eyes are completely open or not. I mean, wide open. But because you have so much, you have so much energies have been invested in, in the eyes and in the head, it would make sense. I mean, this is why we individualize it, right? So we, we have to start with a, with a prescription and then slowly but surely as, as we go, as we work together, we're going to, okay, now we have to individualize it. So yes, let the eyes, the eyes close and think, you know, when I've said you need to try hard, you need to be more intensified. You need to intensify your interest and your interest is about intensifying your sensitivity, more intimate, you know, like more, you know, more intimate means attuned. You know, if you, if, if I want to be, if I want to be more intimate with my wife and just walk up to her and shove my face in her face, that's, that, that, that isn't just cause I'm close to her. It doesn't mean I'm no. intimate. She'll, you know, it's like, Right? So it's the same thing with your, by trying to shove your mind into the breath doesn't mean, you know, all you're actually doing is pushing it away because underneath that is the belief that your breath is separate from you, but it's actually you. So the more, the more you try, the harder you try, the more you push it away. So this is where I'm blaming you. So, yes, no, this, because this goes back to one of the conversations we had off, offline. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is that as I'm starting to experience uh, a more oneness, I am feeling that same with other, like others, like people I care about, which is a great thing. It's a very intuitive thing. It's a lovely thing. And it also is, is this is real, right? Like you can be in tune with someone else and they're not even close by to you. Sure. My daughter and I, for example, we're so much more than we were before. I can sense how she's doing. Like we seem to be on the same wavelength. I don't know what she's thinking. I can't see in her brain or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel a there. There's a certain. There's not as much separateness between us. Um, same with and my house husband. Is my, how is this my fault? Where's well, they, that, yeah, I know. But they like <laughs> feel like you're. <laughs> it is kind of because okay. before I had things in nice, neat categories, and I kind mm-hmm. of was really sure about where things began, where it ended. I, I had a really good order to things and things have begun now to be a little bit more fluid. Um, and I think like veils are li- like, I, I feel less sure about my categories. 
Yeah, good, because they're all categories. They're all just constructions that you've made in your mind. And they have nothing whatsoever to do with the nature of reality. Right? And, you know, what we'll do, I mean, right now, where you are in your practice is, you know, where you're learning to calm your mind down. Not, you know? So the first step is to calm the mind down. Once the mind becomes calm and there's, you know, a lot of thought activity, then we can use the mind and we can begin to um, experience, have insight into your experience, like what's actually going on. So meditation is not about making anything. It's coming to just still the mind enough so you can begin to have insight into what it means to be a human being. And so there are a number of different kinds, there are a number of insights as part of that path. I mean, one of the insights, for instance, is that the body itself is an empty construction, meaning there is actually no diff- there is no boundary to your body. You only experience a boundary because you've used your eyes so much that whenever you, you don't even feel your experience, you, you see it. So you, so you, you, you imprint into the field of, of sensation what you see which means you never actually experience that there is no boundary to the body, that the boundaries are just kind of conventions in your experience. So as you begin to investigate more, well, yes, the body itself becomes open. Now, that doesn't mean that you become jello. You you can still, on on the relative side of the street, you can still experience your body as relatively being separate. Like you're not going to walk into a wall unless, you know, you're drunk. You, you know, relatively, <laughs> you, you can operate. But, right? Right. But on a, but a, but an absolute level, which is really coming to understand perception, is you come to understand that actually the body itself is a construction in the mind, and the more you look into it, the more you can't fight it, the more it opens into space. And this is the same thing in Western science, right? If you get a powerful enough microscope, think power enough mind and you stabilize the thing enough the mind is still and you zoom in and you zoom in and you have a look at this piece of flesh your physical body and if you zoom in and you can then see a cell and then you can see the organelles you keep zooming in and then you can see an atom and you keep zooming in and then you can see electrons and quarks and you keep zooming in and then you got strings and then you got zooming in and then you got turtles and then underneath that you got you know god knows what right essentially the body becomes space so physical flesh is space. We know that. You put it under a microscope, that's what you'll find. Well, meditation is, is basically training the mind to accurately perceive reality. You know, when we accurately perceive the way that reality is, you can split an atom and run a city on nuclear power. Well, it's the same thing with your mind. When your mind can begin to perceive the way things are, you accurately perceive things. And, you know, conventions like the body, you know, so you've read about, you know, the the Anamaya Kosha, the Pranamaya Kosha, these koshas, these sheaths. Well, these sheaths, you know, these aren't esoteric things that, you know, when you train your mind... They're like levels of resolution on a microscope. You just zoom in and there's the, you know, there's the pranamaya kosha and you look into that and even that falls to pieces until the body ex- itself 
you know, is what they call it, the, um, you know, Ananda Maya Kosha becomes blissful. And even beyond that itself, the body dissolves into space. And yet, you're standing on one leg doing tree pose. Simultaneously, your body is dissolved in space. So eventually, as your practice matures, you're practicing on multiple levels simultaneously. On one level, I manipulate my physical body and I enjoy the precision that comes from this of alignment, right? That there's, a, there's an art to that. There's a sense of enjoyment. On another level, as I'm, I'm experiencing the flow of energy or feeling alive, and on another level, the body itself is infinite space and extends indefinitely in all directions. And all of those things are happening simultaneous. It's not like you have to go into some kind of trance state to experience the infiniteness of the body. It's always there. Event, you know, you begin to do it on the on your cushion, but eventually it happens whenever you you know sitting here right now talking with you, or in the case of, of you know your yoga practice, you're moving your body, your physical body, but you also become more and more aware of these other realms of existence. It's like quadraphonics. It's like it's it's so much richer and it's all going on at once. That's how you realize, you know, through let's say a vinyasa form, the nature of reality. You're not gonna, it's not the physical body that you become more and more attuned to. You become more attuned to the deeper levels of experience. So I do it. So that is what is making my yoga practice so fascinating to me. Mm. It's become so, it's taken on so much more meaning and fun. I mean, it's actually fun. Like it doesn't matter what I'm doing. It doesn't matter what posture, it doesn't matter what series, it doesn't, to me, it just doesn't matter. Like, this is so much fun, kind of immerse, you know, like, I feel like I'm like, going for a swim in the ocean, you know, you're, and I love swimming in the ocean. I mean, so that to me, is like the perfect analogy. I'm just immersed in it. And it's not just there. Like, I'm practicing it all over the place. Like, I'm <laughs> She says, oh, bubbly. No, seriously. I'm like in the bathroom, like brushing my teeth and I'm practicing and I'm, and I, it's just the, the reality of why it was so hard before was because I was making it hard. I was trying so hard. I was wanting, you know, I'd finally taken the step and, and decided I was going to go there to begin with, study this in, in, in some kind of fashion or form. And I didn't want to do it wrong. And Hence why I came to you anyway. And if you remember, I didn't want to do it wrong. And so, so in the meantime, I'm like practicing thinking, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? No, that wasn't right. Yeah, and you and I had talked about that. But now that I realize that I have this place I can go inside, I don't know. It makes everything fun. I don't really know how to explain it, but... I can tell you that it's working off the cushion. (laughs) It's not working on the cushion, though, I have to admit. Well, it is working on the cushion, but you you think it's not because it's still hard work. It is hard work. But, yeah, but that's just because if you go to the gym and you lift weights, everyone says, wow, you look really strong. But you always, if if you're being trained right, well, you're like, well, I don't feel like I'm getting any better because my coach, you know, so if you're you're working on the cushion – that's not the place to necessarily look for, for the results. Oh, 
because right because that is the cushion is like the mat times a hundred, right? It's easy. It's much much easier to to be distracted on the mat than it is on the cushion because on the cushion you're still. So even like even avoiding and distracting through movement is reduced. So then the feedback loops of a much if you're wanting to practice, right? The feedback loops of learning are much uh, uh, much faster. There's less dis- there's less distraction. There's less noise in the system. Now you know we would remember that these practices, you know, yoga was designed to address fundamental existential suffering. These were practices designed by people who, you know, this was a it was a matter of life and death. Understanding the nature of life in ancient India was you know was a serious issue because you know you. You'd be dead by the time you're 35 or 40 years old. People didn't live very long. Life was 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 hard. So the practices were developed to transform your whole life. Right? You do it on the cushion, on the sitting, but what you're changing and what you're coming to understand is how your mind works. Now, once you understand how your mind works, you're using your mind every single moment. So the learning, because it's experiential learning, the more you do it, the more you, you know, you, you're coming to, you start doing it automatically during the rest of the day because that's how we learn. It's just like, it's the same thing with us. Now, once you learned about good posture, you know, we're all like standing in, in, the, in the line at the supermarket and you start like, you know, elongating your spine and like, you know, dropping your tailbone. Right? I do that too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so <laughs> that's the, so that's the, that's what happens when you, you know, instructed in posture, but when, when you're instructed in mind, well, the great thing about mind is it's even more easy because wh- whatever you're doing and actually eventually, even when you don't have a body, even when the body goes, you still have a mind. <laughs> so, so it's more fundamental. So then, you know, whether you're washing the dishes or where you're lying in bed or whether you're, or wherever you are and whatever you're doing, there you are, and your practice begins to slowly seep in. And if you just keep, even if you just, you know, keep with a 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, within, you know, and then time passes, and you look back, you will be a completely different person. Much more so, I would say, I would say, because it transforms your, your sense of self. Asana will transform your body. So if you do asana well for a number of years, you definitely, like, it'll transform your body. But it won't necessarily transform your sense of, of being. But if you, you know, if, if you think, if you remember that this is an, an integral practice, so... Asana is meant to be practiced along with meditation. And then they work in, you know, and then as you're seeing and experiencing, oh, you're like, well, there's no difference between... I know. ...sitting on a cushion and doing the asana. You know what? I just realized, though, you say that, and I say that, and I feel it, but I'm still judging right and wrong. I'm still thinking, I'm doing it right, like I'm getting it more in my asana practice, but I'm doing it wrong when I'm sitting, but I'm, I'm separating them again. Well, I, that's one of your deepest samskaras is the sense of, of not being good enough. Yeah. So this is not a, this isn't just a little, 
issue. Yeah. This is you've carried that since you were a child. Yeah. And maybe that's got to do with the Catholic upbringing. Yeah. I mean, these are very deep, you know. It is so, really deep. Yeah, we all have we will all have very deep beliefs, you know. And and if we continue along the path, and as we get deeper and deeper, you know, some of the fun, the last things to go. Are some of our beliefs about the nature of reality. Meaning if you believe that you're not good enough and the truth is always here, it's always here, then actually the beliefs that you're having are stopping the realization from blossoming. You understand? So at a very subtle level, that belief is like a slab of concrete. It's not a, it's not a little thing. It's very big. And as, we, as your practice develops and, and your mind becomes subtle and subtler, you'll begin to notice how a belief like that completely changes your experience of reality. Completely. Because when that belief dissolves and there's a sense of like being sufficient and being enough and being able to relax into the present moment, then everything will automatically open up and the, the natural beauty of, of, you know, of being will blossom. And this is where it's really important for you to, you know, in your, in your asana practice to just watch and in your meditation practice to watch the judgments. Yeah. Because those judgments are related to those beliefs and applied in the, in the judge, of course, is the belief that, well, you're not good enough right now and you need to get better. But if you believe that, you'll always believe that. Meaning, you'll always be operating inside that belief. It will never end. If you're operating inside that belief, there is no end to the path. It's like dangling a carrot in front of you and you'll always be chasing the carrot because underlying is that, is that I'm not good enough, I'll never get there, I need to try harder. I'm not good enough, I'll never get there, I need to try harder. I'm not good enough. You'll never, ever, ever find the contentment that you're seeking from based upon the belief that I'm not there right now, I need to try harder. It's not, it's not feasible. So, so, so as the mind becomes refined in meditation and sharper and sharper and sharper, then you're able to catch and see in your direct experience how these ideas block your experience of the inherent truth of, of being. It's these ideas that we carry with us. They're very powerful. We've learned them when we're very young, but they create a huge amount of suffering, right? Because they aren't just beliefs. They're also whole experiences that they are a way of being where you're constantly orienting towards the future and, you know, never able to fully find what you live, live the truth because we become addicted to seeking it or, or, or trying to get there. We become, we become addicted to practices that are going to take us somewhere. The idea of, of, of getting better. It never ends. And that's what they mean to samsara, or the cycle of suffering, is that you just never, never end. It's always, you know, it's, it's never good enough. Never good enough. So it's like the physical pattern, you know, we look for those in the yoga practice, you look for a physical pattern that eventually, you know, that's not healthy and will bring pain, you know, to your body, mm -hmm. a certain way of holding yourself. 
I do. I have a thinking pattern. I guess we all do. And same, same. It's a pattern. It's a a cycle. Uh, and it keeps leading me into the same place, which isn't uh, happy. It's a painful place. It, it doesn't feel good. And the absolutely. And the more sensitive you become, you'll begin to see that that actually the physical patterns are expressions of the mental. That 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 this like they're interrelated. Like how you you know the whole structure of your body and your tissues is interrelated with your consciousness. And, you know, I mean, I think we, we discussed this is when you're at a certain point when you're relaxed. You found that your spinal cord, like your your back, stretched, and you were able to go into a deeper back bend because you weren't so scared. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So it's the, so it's the same thing. The whole structure of your body, how your body is structured, you know, it is organized around defense mechanisms, you know, and, and some scars or, or reactive patterns of avoiding the present moment in some shape or form. And we all have different ways of doing that. And that's why you know, with, as your practice develops, as you become more sensitive to the body and more loving and start listening to it, then you can start to, to really not only transform the body in a very deep level, but also your mind because you understand that, oh, well, you know, you might not be able to perfect a certain asana, but it really isn't about that. The asanas are just ways that you can become more intimate with your experience to see how you relate to them, to see how you organize yourself around them, to see where your habitual patterns are. And, and you know, and thereby freeing, freeing your body, but also more importantly, freeing your mind because then you roll up your mat and then you go home to your family or you go to your job and then you have to, you have to use your mind. Man. Man. How did you learn all of this? <laughs> you have to do a headstand for 25 minutes. <laughs> oh, I'm screwed. <laughs> so, I'm really excited to bring you. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to bring you here to DC. I'm really I'm, excited that I'm you're coming. I'm excited about it. Um, I think it'll be, it'll be, it's going to be great fun. What what can people expect uh, over the weekend? Um, that's a great question. Samadhi. Um, well, I think the first thing is not to expect anything because it, it becomes more difficult to work with people if they if they think they know what they're going to experience. <laughs> Duh! Case in Duh. point, over here. Right. Um, I think that for most people, you know, when they learn meditation with with myself. Um, it's going to be very, very different from what they thought learning meditation was like. It's going to be very, very precise. It's going to be step by step by step, much like how they've learned yoga. And it isn't kind of woo-woo. It's going to be very precise. They should expect to, at the end of, you know, to, to definitely work. But if you practice Ashtanga, you're not afraid of working. No, that's true. You know, of, of putting your heart and soul into it. But they should come out at the end of the, of the weekend having a sense of what the practice is, what they need to do and what the state and what, you know, what the next stages are that they need to be working on. And also have had, I think in the weekend enough experience to have some degree of, of confidence in, in developing a practice. And that's my hope is that they can come out of it saying, okay, 
I now know what I need to do to develop a practice and, and be able to commit to a daily practice with some precision and confidence that they can then invest, you know, 10, 15 minutes a day and know that it's going to go somewhere. Yeah. And this, this has been you, when we started our work, I had no idea what to expect. And, um, it's taken on shapes and forms that I never anticipated. Obviously. I mean, it, you know, I'm doing it while I brush my teeth. So basically <laughs> <laughs> you've infiltrated all areas of my life. That's right. <laughs> but, there'll, be, there'll be an English voice in your head forever now. Oh, great. So there's one in my house and one in my head. Awesome. <laughs> You're outnumbered. I'm totally outnumbered. Well, I really can't wait. I am so excited for you to come. I'm so excited for my community to meet you and for you to meet them. And, um, and I'm so grateful that you sat down with me and I think so many people would benefit from talking to you (laughs) (laughs) or at least from hearing from you anyway. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you, John Churchill for not only helping to tame this monkey of a student, but also for today's episode. You can learn more about John and ways to work with him by visiting his website at samadhiintegral.com. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe on iTunes. I promise you there's many more conversations coming with your favorite teachers that you won't want to miss. This podcast was edited and produced by Chris Lucas and hosted by me, Peg Mulqueen. Thanks again for really tuning in.